Amen. Well, it's so good to see all of you. And um, man, uh, you guys sounded great as I was in the front worshiping, just hearing all of you in the back uh, worshiping God. And it's so good to be here, uh, especially with our youth group here. Um, and uh, we are just excited to worship in this way. You know, it was about six or seven years ago, um, I had a good friend of mine who's pastoring a church out in Atlanta. Um, his wife called me and left kind of a frantic message. Um, saying, please give me a call back. It's an emergency. And, you know, when you get something like that, um, especially it was from his phone, um, she would never call me directly. He would usually call me. And, uh, you know, your imagination's kind of running wild. What happened? Like, why, why are they calling? What, what happened to him? Um, and I remember after church had ended, I got the message, and I called her back as soon as I could. And, um, you know, she told me what happened, um, that my good friend had... Um, had an emergency open heart surgery. He was, at the time, must have been 35 at the time. He had a blood clot that had traveled from his leg into his lungs, and they had to go and get this. It was a matter of life and death. And so he was in surgery when she had called. And so she asked me to pray for him, asked me to call his parents and tell them what's going on. And um, it was one of those very tense moments, and you're praying that everything would go well. And he, the surgery was successful, and he was okay. Um, it took him months, uh, if, almost a year, to fully recover uh, from having your chest opened up um, and them operating on it. But, you know, he was just, as you would imagine, he was just grateful to be alive. He was just happy to be alive. That um, every day was kind of like a big bonus for him, you know, as you could say. And, um, you know, after that, he had a couple of things that he had to do. He had to um, get clots removed from his legs where there were other clots reformed, the minor procedures compared to what he had gone through with the open heart. Um, he had, would get bruised sometimes because he was on blood thinners and his, it would kind of swell up his legs and he would be in bed sometimes for a day or two just to get over a regular bruise. But he was okay because he was really grateful that he was alive because he wasn't sure if he was going to make it. And that's kind of part of his testimony. He thought he was not going to make it. And everything else that happens now, he says, it's, it's not a big deal. If he didn't suffer um, and go through that big surgery in the beginning, everything would be a lot more different. And I share this story with you because um, if we fully understand, if we fully grasp what God has given to us, the rest of our lives and all the little things in our lives that stress us out, you know, a friend acting dumb to us or us not doing so well on a test or um, not getting the promotion or whatever it is, all the little things in life would not affect us so much. It puts things in perspective. And I want us this morning to have a correct perspective of what God has done, that we have so much in him. The psalmist here in this psalm that we read does a wonderful job of this. He, for seven times, he talks about what God has done. You have done this. And you'll see that phrase, you have, you have, you have, what God has done for him. And today, what we're going to do is go over the seven. We're going to kind of sprint through the seven. And then we're going to look at our proper response to that, what it ought to be. Right? Um, and I want to ask you to have your Bibles open and follow along. Number one, what has God done? And here's the first you have statement. I will extol, extol you, O Lord. Let's read the underlying part out loud together, right? I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my enemies rejoice. You have drawn me up. And some of you who are very particular, you will notice that P is not 
bolded. I just noticed that. But for the two of us, that's going to bother us. Now it bothers everyone. But uh, you have drawn me up, right? Um, uh, yeah, I better get through this point quickly because I keep looking at the P. All right, so you have drawn me up. Uh, it's the picture. It's, a, it's a, in the original language. When he says, I extol you, the commentators and the scholars will tell us, right? Um, I will extol you. I will, it's the picture of being lifted up, lifting up God. So it's kind of like a picture of a, a grown-up taking a baby and picking them up and putting them up somewhere higher. And so it's like, I'm going to lift you up, God. I'm here. You need to be above me. That's the picture. But the very next, right, you have drawn me up, is the picture of someone reaching down, grabbing someone, and pulling them up to his status or her status. It's like getting water out of a well, and you're pulling it up out of the bottom of the well. And so the picture we have is that God has lifted us up from way down below, and then as a response, I, I want to lift you up, God. And we have this picture of a pull and a push, in a way. But he's drawn us up in this way. The second thing that God has done for us in verse 2, O Lord my God, I cry to you for help. Let's read the underlined part. Of and you have healed me. By saying you have healed me, it's saying that I needed healing, that I was hurt, that I was diseased, that I was ill, that you have healed me, that sin has made us all ill and diseased at one point or another. You have healed me. Ultimately, God heals us. When we get to heaven with him, we will be in perfect health. Um, it's interesting because you get to, you read the book of Leviticus and over and over, those with certain diseases and certain ailments are not allowed to approach God, um, allowed not allowed to come to the temple. They had to go through the priest. They had to have these times to be purified. Uh, they were unclean. What happens now is that Jesus comes in the Gospels and he reaches out to the diseased. He reaches out to the sick and the crippled and the lame and he goes out to them. And so what we see is a picture is that me and my sickness cannot reach God. Jesus in humanity comes down to me. And when it's all said and done, in Revelation 21, verse 4, it tells us the promise, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. All right, so that is what's to come. And we have that already. Thirdly, uh, the third thing that God has done for us is found in verse 3. O Lord, and let's read that part together, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. All right, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol in the capital there. Sheol is the word in the Hebrew for the place of death, often translated as hell, the place of death, the grave. In the New Testament, it's this, uh, the word that's used is Hades. Uh, the same thing, the place of death. And so when my soul is brought out from death, it's the idea that I have spiritual life, that I was spiritually dead, now I have spiritual life. Not only has he healed us in this way, but what does he do? In the second part of verse 3, this is the fourth, what God has done. You restored me to life. So he saves me out of Sheol, but not only does he just barely save me, but he now gives me back my life. He gives me a life. He restores my life. He now puts me in a alive status. And what a wonderful thought that is. Number five, the fifth thing that God has done. By your favor, O Lord, let's read that out loud. You made my mountain stand strong. It's an interesting phrase. You say, what does that mean? Well, the mountain often in the Psalms, it represents strength. It represents a person's strength. 
right? Uh, the good circumstances in their life. And so someone you see with a, a big family and riches might say, well, they're, it's like a, they're like a mountain, right? Um, they can't be moved. It's immovable. It's big. He's saying he has good circumstances in life, right? Uh, health, wealth, friends, looks, whatever it is. He has all the things that he needs. He says, God has given all these things. Everything I have, God has given to me. And how true that is, that everything, where I stand, the good circumstances I have is all due to God. God has given me all these things. The sixth thing that God has done for us is in verse 11. Let's read that out loud. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. Now, no one can do that for us. Mourning into dancing. Someone who is in desperate mourning, hopeless and crying, is now transformed into a person who is dancing, rejoicing, joyful. He's turned that for us. Um, and the seventh thing that we see in verse 11, let's read that part. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Isn't this the goal of all of us? To be clothed with gladness? Don't we all want that? For those of you in junior high, isn't that the goal you want? You want to be happy in life. Right? You've got to appease your parents and do what they say. You've got to have some friends. You know, those of you who are just working and, it, and just started working, you've got a new job. You, you're working so hard because why? Uh, you want to be glad. Those of you who got married, why did you get married? You got married because you want to be glad. Those of you moms and dads here, why did you have kids? Well, because you thought you would be glad if you had them, right? Um, and sometimes it's true, right? Um, most of the time it's true, all right? Um, so, now, let's pause here for a second. We, we just kind of sprinted through these seven, but think of the things God has given to us. Gladness, mourning into dancing. Um, it's restored my life, saved my life, uh, brought me out of death, uh, healed me. All these things that he's given to us. What the psalmist is trying to get across, I think, is trying to tell us he has given you way more than you could expect. He's given you what no one in this world can give you. He has given you what no money can buy. It's all these things. Now, what's the worry? What's the problem? Uh, there's a story about Alexander the Great. And the story goes that as he would travel with his servants and his guards and all the people that would go with him and the soldiers there you would imagine as he would travel people would know there's comes alexander the great and one day in particular he was he was uh, going down a countryside road with his whole kind of entourage and they're going down and on the side of the road was a beggar a beggar uh, that saw him coming and the beggar did not know what to do did not know what to expect but just put out his hand hoping for some kind of a handout, or a little bit of mercy from Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great tells his group to just stop for a moment. And the beggar puts his hand up, and Alexander the Great digs around, and he, he tosses at him gold coins, not the copper coins. And the beggar collects them all. This is gold. This was, this was the most valuable of coins. Um, and one of his attendants asks him, why did you give him gold when copper would have been plenty? He was just a beggar. And the response that Alexander the Great said was, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. Now, it's interesting. Why did God give me so much? 
It's not because we deserved it or, you know, uh, we earned all these things. No, it, it fits the God who gives to us because he is so great. Um, about a year ago, I remember I was listening to uh, Dave Ramsey, and some of you are familiar with him. He's a Christian financial guru. He was on the radio and books. Talks about how to handle your money. And I was listening to him on the radio, and he was talking about tipping. I think it's kind of interesting, tipping, right? Um, and it's an interesting thought because... Um, I love to go to countries where there's no tipping. You know, it's kind of neat, right? Like this country, there's no tipping? Like praise the Lord. And then here, um, you're, you have to tip, right? You have to tip. And now there's more and more pressure. And I, could, I seriously remember uh, now they, they, they put down on your receipt like how much the percentages are. So not only do they want you to tip, but now they kind of insult you like you can't figure it out. And um, like I have a friend, he's got five kids, so there's seven of them. And he says he can't even go out to eat because Parties of six or more get tipped 20% extra or whatever. So you say you can't even go, right? And what are you going to split in two parties? Or what do you do? Um, but I remember just recently I got, I got a, a, a receipt and it said, you know, it's, it started. And I don't know when this happened, but it, it started at 18%. So like at 18%, it's this amount. 20% is this amount. And 25% is this amount. So this is your suggested numbers. And, you know, if you have an ex-waiter, waitress friend in your party, they will shame you to death. Like, they, you know, hey, you know, this is how we survive, cheap people like you. You know, like, so you have to pay 20, 25%. Why not? Let, let's make it 100. Why not? Like, it's crazy. Now, um, but now back to Dave Ramsey. He was saying he, he, liked, he tips if it's good. He gives more. If it's bad, he said he barely gives. And I was listening to him. But... Because he's now nationally syndicated, he's on the radio, his books are out, people know his name. He says, for his own namesake, he has to tip at least 15%, even if it's horrible. Because they will have a receipt with his name on it. And his, you know, this was his credit card or debit card, it has his name. And if he puts a small amount, they will say, oh, this Dave Ramsey, he, he just, you know, he, he saves all the money to himself. He does, you know, it would make him look bad. It would hurt his own reputation. So he said he has to do it this way, right? How we come to God, our church, and we have to be reminded how much he's given to us. And I want us to walk away scratching our heads saying, this much? Why did he give me so much? Why does he turn my mourning, not just into uh, kind of a neutral state, but he turns it into dancing? Why does he turn my, sa my sackcloth the, the, the outfit you wear in your grief, why does he turn that into gladness? Why is he so concerned about giving so much where no one could give this much because it's who he is? And the psalmist goes on to say, well, I've gotten so much. What should my response be? It's interesting, right in the middle, verse 6 and 7, he talks about a life without God. Um, the picture we get is God gave him so much. He prayed, God gave him so much, and then he forgets God and how meaningless that life is, right? And how he ought to be so grateful. Wow. And I, I was joking around at our, our Irvine. Well, I wasn't joking, but I was kind of serious. But I was, um, at our Irvine service, I just came back from one of our couples, uh, Steve and Audrey, got married yesterday, and I was like, it was great. Uh, but, you know, you know, you go to weddings, and, and often, even a lot of our brothers here at our church, uh, you go, wow, that guy's really lucky. Right? Like, he's marrying up. Like, wow. Like, he's, you know, he's really lucky. Like, Pastor Sam, you know, you know, he really married up. He'll tell you. 
Um, <laughs> you know, John, you know, our youth director, he's getting married. Like, wow, like Tina is really good. John is, you know, he prayed a lot. And, uh, <laughs> and God is gracious. And it's good. We, we have to, and, and all of you, a lot of you guys, you know, and I'm not going to point you out, but I see all of you. And yeah, you guys, wow, it's, you know, she really settled for you, right? Like we had, and I, I, that's how I feel. I'm like, wow, um, she is such a good person. You know, my wife is so good and she's, wow, she's taken me. And we have to kind of grasp that because sometimes these guys forget and they think, oh, I, no, you, you're really blessed, man. You, you got lucky, right? Um, when we, it's easy to go to God and forget what God has given, uh, forget the giver and focus on the things he's given. And this is what he says here. Verse 6 talks about prosperity. Verse talks, 7 talks about the mountain that God has strengthened in his life. And he says, I have these things. These are things that all matter. This is the source of my joy. This is all that. Look at verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. He thought, and he said, the psalmist said, I have this. I have what God has given to me. Nothing else really matters. Nothing else matters. I have security in these things. You know, I got accepted to this program. I got a promotion. I got a raise. I got this house. Oh, I, I got to marry up, you know, and I married this beautiful. And we focus on the things that God has given to us and we forget the giver. He says, I shall not be moved. He thought that he could find stability, security in the prosperity, not in the giver himself. Gerald Wilson in his commentary on the Psalms has this line that I, I thought was so profound. Security is as much an attitude of dependence as it is a circumstance of protection. So it's not just about my circumstances. It's the attitude of dependence. Charles Spurgeon preached these words. He says, do not become self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency is Satan's net, wherein he catches men like poor silly fish, and does destroy them. Be not self-sufficient. Think yourselves nothing, for you are nothing, and live by God's help. The way to grow strong in, God, in Christ is to become weak in yourself. God pours no power into man's heart until man's power is all poured out. Live then daily a life of dependence on the grace of God. Hebrews 13.5 is interesting. It uh, puts the love of money as opposed to God's presence. And he says, flee. Keep your life uh, free from the love of money. Go away from it. Keep it free from this. Now, money's not bad. Having Working hard is not bad. But the love of money, just greed of money is bad. He says, why? When that happens, what goes down on the other side? God's presence. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What, what is he saying here? Don't depend on the things, on the money. And you know what? Most of us are out of state. You're going to make more and more and more as the years come. And don't think, boy, I have arrived because I've got this. Don't forget God. True security comes in God's presence in our lives. True security comes from our recognition of him. And so we have to understand this, right? Verse 7, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain strong. So all the things in my life. Maybe you have a good family. You have a good home. You have good health. And you have all these nice things. It's by God, I have this. 
And what does he say? You hid your face, I was dismayed. When God hides his face from us, the reaction is, I was dismayed. Um, the commentaries will tell us, the scholars will tell us that word dismayed is too weak. It's, it's a word terrified, anxious. There's the same word used when Joseph's brother saw that Joseph was now number two to Pharaoh, that when they saw him, they were dismayed. They were terrified. And what he is saying here is that if you hide your face, God, I am terrified. If you hide your face, but I have everything in this temporal world, I will be nothing. I will be terrified. And how should we respond to God? These three responses I want to highlight to you um, in response to what God has given to us. Number one, we have to acknowledge God daily. The opposite of acknowledging is to ignore someone. Uh, to acknowledge God daily. You know, remember in verse one, it's I will extol you. I will lift you up, God. That picture um, is to say you are more important in the, in the order. I'm going to put you above, than, above me. So my decisions will come by you. And your matter name, uh, matters more than my own name. And I will lift you up. And that's the picture we have. Acknowledge God every day. Don't ignore him. Um, you know, there was a, uh, a pastor that did a whole sermon series. Craig Gushel, uh did a series, and he cleverly titled the series A Practical Atheist. He said many Christians today in America are practical, uh, practical atheists. So they say they believe one thing, right? They have a creed, okay, I believe in, in God and Father, Son. They, they have their belief. But when it comes to real life, he says everyone, he said the people, you cannot live like those people do. You can't just say, I believe something, but when it comes to how you handle your money, you know, how you date someone, the way you interact with someone, how you deal with, uh, with money at work, and uh, how you raise your kids, and, and all these things, everything else, you cannot be a practical atheist and say, I, I'm just going to do what everyone else does. When we acknowledge God, we ask God, how should I do this? God, in a dating relationship, you know, how should I date this person? Lord God, you know, in a, in a hardship against someone, how should I forgive someone? God, at work, what's the manner of how I should work? Should I cut corners like everyone else? Should I work hard for you? Um, you know, when I deal with family members, how should I talk to them? All of them is dependent upon God. God is the one. That matters more than myself. So we acknowledge him. We cannot ignore him. We cannot say, I believe in you, and then ignore him. We acknowledge him daily. Secondly, we go to him in desperate prayer. Um, verse 10, it has three imperatives in this prayer. Three desperate words. Hear, O Lord. Be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper, He prays desperately to God. This prayer is not a casual prayer. It's not checking something off a list. Okay, I prayed. Oh, I appeased my guilt. I did my thing this morning. You know, I'm good enough. Like, um, I no, this is a desperation. This is us going before God saying, God, I have nothing. God, I can do nothing without you. God, I am just a sinner. God, help me. Would you just help me to stop doing this, God? Would you help me to love this person, God? Would you help me to focus on God? Would you? And it's, it's a desperate prayer. This is illustrated perfectly in Luke 18, right, where the Pharisee prays in the front. He goes into the temple, and he walks up to the front, standing up and hands raised, and he prays, God, I thank you. I am not like these others. 
and he gives an eloquent prayer. And it sounds so good that everyone else around hears it, and they are impressed, and he prays so that everyone else could hear it. And in the back of the room, who was there? The tax collector, the one who stole from his own people, the one who took more than he should, the one that everyone hates, the one that they've made a separate class of people for, sinner and then a tax collector, the bottom of society. He's beating his chest, crying, Lord, have mercy on me. And when we grasp the goodness, the holiness of God, and we look at our own self-righteous life, our selfishness, our vain conceit that we have, we go to God and we pray. Hear, O oh Lord, be merciful to me. O oh Lord, be my helper. A person who is independent cannot go to and ask for help. A person who doesn't need mercy doesn't ask God to be merciful to him. And the third thing that he does, that we ought to do, is to praise God with all of our lives. Every day, until God calls you home, till you can really breathe your last breath, you ought to praise him. Praising God, when you come to church and you're singing to God, is a privilege. It's not, oh, I like that song, you know, hey, you know, Yvette's up there. She sounds better than me. I'll just let her sing, and I'll just kind of text someone. You know, it's not. No, it's you come to church, and you sing. And we play the music loud enough so that those of us who don't sound so good, it, it kind of covers all of that. It's okay, right? And God hears our, we need to praise him every day. Look at verse 12. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. I am not going to be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. How much, how long will he give thanks? Forever. Who is, he says, my glory. The things that I am proud of, he's saying. The things that I think I'm so good at. The things that I hold as my prized possessions. All those things, he says, my glory may sing your praise. All the things I think I'm so good at, I'm going to give that back to you, God. I praise your name. We have to be people who praise intentionally, who sings loud, don't keep our mouths shut, but we sing because of what he has done for us. And this is my prayer for us, that we would understand what Jesus did on the cross when he died for our sins. And when he said those wonderful words that it is finished, it's all finished, that we are taken care of, that will put everything back into perspective. My little problems, my little feelings, uh, the things around in my life. You know what? What God has done, the psalmist can't contain it in just one chapter. What God has done for me, my mourning into dancing, sackcloth into gladness. He has given me so much in Christ. I will now praise him. I, I hope that we would be filled with praise and prayers for the rest of our lives. Let's pray together. God, you've given us so much. We were expecting, Lord, a few copper coins and you've thrown gold at us, precious gold. You have given us everything. Lord, we still cannot fully grasp how much you've given to us. So we come and we uh, want to be reminded again. In your word today, we were reminded how much you've given to us. So Lord, we want to respond to you. We want to praise you. God, so thank you. Hear our prayers, God.
Help us to love you in this way back. Um, help us to be filled with praise in our life. Prayers from someone that is in need of your mercy. So we come to you in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of offering.